0: Uh, Let's pray before we look further at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who is sovereign over history. Uh, You know the future, and indeed you plan the future and bring it to pass as you ordain. As we reflect on this prophetic book of Isaiah, we pray that you would indeed help us to have a deepening confidence uh, in your sovereign control over history, Uh, and indeed may we respond rightly to what we reveal to us through your Word. About the future. Amen. Uh, How would your life be different if you could know the future? Um, What benefits would there be for you knowing the future? I don't know if you remember in 1993, there was the classic fantasy comedy uh, Groundhog Day. I can see a few people responding with positive memories. Uh, It is deemed, indeed, a a classic in its day by some, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Uh, It stars Bill Murray as a cynical TV weatherman, uh, and he's on a filming assignment in a small American town. Uh, He's reporting on their annual Groundhog Festival. However, uh, he becomes caught in a time loop, uh, reliving the same day, time and time again. Initially, he's driven to distraction, And he tries ever more desperate and drastic means to break out of the loop, but all to no avail. However, after a while, he perceives a way of turning the situation to his advantage. Uh, He falls for his beautiful uh, film producer, uh, who's played by Ali McDowell. And so what he seeks to do is to woo her. Uh, Initially, he has no success. Uh, They are very different people. Uh, and he's not a very gifted wooer of women. However, uh, as each day he relives each day, uh, he's able to draw on the lessons learnt from the previous day, and his attempts to woo his producer. And so, over time, he refines his technique and aligns his interest with hers. And eventually, to the point where, well, I won't spoil it. You can see the film. But wouldn't it be great if we could know the future? Uh, it would give us a chance to modify our lives in the light of what we know. Just think about it. Uh, We could enjoy uh, more romantic success. Maybe that's attractive to you. Uh, We could make a killing on the share market, undoubtedly. Uh, We could avoid the pitfalls and the mistakes that cause us ongoing regret. Wouldn't it be great if we could know the future and live now in the light of it? Well, in Isaiah's vision, uh, we get a sneak peek of the future. Uh, We get a glimpse of God's timetable for the world and his program for history. And we don't get this knowledge through a leak of some disenchanted clerical worker in God's administration. Uh, This is God's intentional disclosure. He's disclosing where history is heading so that we can align our lives now and live in the light of it. In Isaiah chapters 2 to 4, we see that on God's calendar, there are two major time periods marked. Uh, What he refers to as the last days, plural, and then secondly, the last day, singular. So, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, is all about the last days, plural. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 2, there it is, uh, in the last days. But then, in chapter 2, verse 6 onwards, all the way through to chapter 4, it's about the last day. So chapter 2, verse 11, in that day, singular. Chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord Almighty has a day in store. And so it continues. Uh, Verse 17, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 18, all say, in that day. So, uh, in God's diary there are two blocks of time marked. The last days and then the last day. So, uh, let's look at each of them in turn and consider what they refer to and the significance of them to our lives now. So firstly, the last days in chapters 2, verses 1 to 5. In his vision, uh, in the 8th century BC, Isaiah is shown what would happen In a future time, which, as I say, is marked in God's calendar as the last days. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. Now it's a bit of useful to have a bit of background. In Isaiah's day, the surrounding nations, the pagan nations, Worship their gods on high mountains. Uh, That is where they built their altars. It's where they put their temples. Now, in Jerusalem, uh, the temple, uh, also referred to as the house of the Lord, was also on a hill, but it wasn't an especially high hill. But Isaiah sees a time in the future when the Lord's temple will be on the highest mountain. It will be supreme. All nations will come to it, and it will be the spiritual center of the whole world. Now look at verse 2 again as it continues. It says this And all nations will stream to it. Uh, many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. You see the metaphor. Uh, it's one of rivers of people flowing from all nations into Jerusalem. To the Lord's mountain, uh, to the Lord's house, that is to his temple. And they don't come as tourists. They come to be taught, to be taught by the Lord and to learn his ways. Verse 3. Uh, he will teach us his ways so that may, we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's from Jerusalem, that is also Zion, that the Lord will rule. We see this in verse 4. Verse 4, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And as verse 4 continues, it becomes apparent that as people submit to him and his word, his rule will bring peace. Verse 4 continues. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's a vision, a vision of the future. It's a vision which must have seemed like fantasy land for the people in Israel back then. It must have seemed to them like an absurd and an impossible dream. You see, back in the 8th century BC, uh, the idea of Jerusalem as a world centre would have been laughable. Uh, Judah was a minnow on the world stage, a tiny, insignificant player at the, might of the, at the mercy of the mighty empires. And on top of all that, Israel were a rebellious people. They weren't even going the Lord's way themselves never mind inviting other nations to join them. And before too long, uh, other nations would indeed be coming to Jerusalem, but not to worship the Lord, but to invade and to destroy. So here's the question. Uh, When are these last days going to begin? Uh, What is the prophet referring to? And the answer is that the last days have already begun. We are living in them now. We are in the last days. What God revealed to Isaiah is now being fulfilled. You'll be familiar with those words in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It's the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out on God's people. And it's on that day that the Apostle Peter stands up and says this, He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, speaking about the pouring out of the Spirit. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So you see, with the arrival of Jesus, uh, the last days have begun. With his death, uh, with his resurrection, and with his exaltation, the last days have been set in motion. Uh, Significantly, the book of Hebrews begins with these words. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets uh, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So we now are in the last days, plural. Isn't that exciting? The time that Isaiah predicted, we are now in it. But you might be thinking, well, if these are the last days, where is the evidence? Uh, There isn't a temple in Jerusalem anymore. Uh, Never mind nations flocking there to be taught. Is this really? Are these really the last days? But of course, that is to miss how the New Testament understands these prophecies being fulfilled. What is he talking about when he refers to the temple? He's not speaking of some building in Jerusalem. The temple is actually Jesus. Remember, Jesus said in chapter, John chapter 2, uh, verse 19, he says this to the, the cynical Jews around him at the time, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They're all a bit bemused because they're thinking he's speaking about the literal, physical temple. But then uh, the narration of John uh, goes to explain in verse 21, the temple he had spoken of, was his body, and they would indeed destroy it, but it would indeed be raised again in three days. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where God is with us. Jesus is the temple where the perfect sacrifice for our sins is offered. Jesus is the temple where we meet God. He is the temple on the highest mountain because, of course, he is supreme. As he said just before he returns to heaven in Matthew 28 verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He reigns supreme. His mountain is the highest. The temple of the house of the Lord being the highest mountain is a picture of Jesus and his exalted place to God's right hand. And now, indeed, people from all the nations are flowing to him. Uh, Jesus says in John 12, verse 32, uh, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And that is what we see. Uh, rivers of people from all around the world flowing to Jesus. They come to him to submit to his rule and to obey his teaching. Remember his words in Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And as the gospel goes out, the nations are coming in to Jesus. And as they do that, people who were enemies are being brought together in peace. And as we track the trajectory, in the end, the whole world will be at peace one day under the rule of Christ when he returns. Then they will beat their spears into plowshares, if you know what a plowshare is. We don't, but believe me, it's benign. So what is the significance of this For us today. Uh, Firstly, uh, this vision should help us with our priorities. Uh, It informs us as to what really matters in our lives. What is the most significant thing that is happening in the world today? It's this it is people flowing to Jesus. In other words, it is the growth of God's church. The spread of the gospel and the nations coming to Christ is what's in God's calendar for this period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. This is God's work. He does it behind the scenes very often. He's working 24-7, 365 days a year. This is where history has been heading over the centuries. And if this, this is the main thing in God's diary don't you think it should be the main thing in our diary? The spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in the world should be what we're praying for, what we're working for, what we're excited about, and what we are involved in. And the second point of significance for us today is this. This vision should give us confidence. Uh, Christ's kingdom is building all the time and it's not going to fail. Uh, Jesus is the supreme Lord of all. He has the supreme authority and he's building his church and not even the gates of hell can prevail against that. What do we see in Acts? God's purposes, they continue unstoppably. The spread of the word and a right response to it. Uh, It may seem to us that our little bit of the world, uh, that the rivers flowing to the mountain of the Lord are a tiny trickle. But when we stand back and we see the global picture, the past 2,000 years have seen this vision in Isaiah 2 being fulfilled in a remarkable way. Think about it. The church began with 120 people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1. But by 300 AD the church had exploded to five million people worldwide. And since then, the church has grown and grown to hundreds of millions and billions of people. In every country of the world, people are flooding to Jesus. And they come to him willingly, not by force. Readily they come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now, the devil tries to copy what God is doing. So it's no surprise that the devil is working hard to set up his own rival mountain. But people are being brought to that mountain by force and by fear. Through violence, through forced marriage, through the power of money, through the fear of punishment if they don't submit. And it's an ugly distortion and it's a false mountain. Uh, Secularism or atheism or some other religion is not going to win the day. There is a miraculous magnetism to Jesus' mountain, and that should give us a quiet confidence in telling other people about Jesus. Jesus. This picture is something to keep in mind when we're feeling isolated, maybe as the only follower of Christ in our workplace or in our college or in our family. Our own little story, or the story of our little church here in Cherrybrook, is part of a much bigger story. It's part of a global operation which God predicted and is now bringing to pass through Christ. But why does it matter that we are such people? People who are coming to Christ to be taught by him and to submit to his rule. Uh, What if somebody says, eh, I'm fine as I am. Uh, Or even, I've got my own mountain. That suits me better. Well, it brings us then to move from considering the last days to the last day. And this is the remainder of our passage today. Because this is the second thing significantly marked on God's calendar. Uh, Now that the last days have been set in motion with the death and resurrection of Christ, the clock is ticking and the countdown has begun. And it's moving now to what Jesus called the last day day singular uh, it's what's described in chapter 2 verse 6 uh, all the way to the end of chapter 4 the last day will be a day we see of terror for some but wonder for others so what will it be like on that last day uh, for many it will be a day of sheer terror look at verse 19 Men will flee to caves and the rocks and to holes in the ground, from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to shake the earth. In that day, men will throw away to the rodents and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to the caverns and the rocks and to the overhanging crags, from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. You see, it's a picture of utter panic. People fleeing in sheer terror. Uh, Tragically, on our news today, of course, we see with increasingly regularity the rogue gunman uh, running amok in schools or shopping malls. And in every incident, uh, the story is the same. We hear, don't we, accounts of people running terrified for their lives, hiding under desks or in closets, anywhere to escape from the crazed shooter, but tragically often to no avail. This is the kind of terror conveyed by this passage. But the shock is that people aren't trying to escape from some crazed gunman. They're trying to escape from the Lord Almighty. They are fleeing in terror from the Lord in all his splendor and his majesty. And that's so different to what many people think that that day will be like. One of my neighbors speaks with a tone of defiant bravado at the prospect of meeting God. He says, and I quote, Well, I'll have a few uncomfortable questions for him. Uh, Why hasn't he allowed, why has he allowed so much suffering in the world? Uh, Why didn't he make himself more obvious? Uh, Sadly, I fear, and I'm sure, that such bravado will trickle away in terror when that day comes, and his defiant words will fail him. God has told us about the terror of that day so that on that day we need not be terrified. In coming to Christ now, we have both peace now and on that day. Uh, There was a mini mini version of this day uh, in the 6th century BC. Uh, This was, of course, when the Lord came in judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, In 597 BC, Uh, God used the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, and his army as his agent of destruction. Uh, For the sake of time, we've had to skip over chapter 3, but that's what chapter 3 is all about. But that day of terror back then in the 6th century BC was just a small foreshadowing of the final day of terror when the Lord returns to judge the earth. So, when is that day? Uh, The finger of the Bible continues to point to the future. Revelation chapter 6 reiterates that this terrifying day is yet to come. And Revelation chapter 6 actually borrows language from Isaiah chapter 2 to paint a picture of the panic on that day. Uh, Revelation 6 verse 16. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who are these people who on that day will flee in terror from the Lord? The surprise is this. It's not just the violent, criminal, and immoral margins of society. Uh, We're simply told in Isaiah 2 that they are the proud. Chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that is exalted, and they, wait, they will be humbled. At verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low, and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So that final day is a day on which the proud will be brought low. But why is pride singled out? And the answer is this. Pride is the root of sin. What is it that keeps people from going God's way? It's pride. It's pride that leads people to come up with their own pick-and-mix religion, as people were doing in chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, uh, they're full of superstitions from the East. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. Uh, think about it. It's pride that leads people to trust in money and possessions and to think, huh, I don't need God, as the people were doing back then. Verse 7 uh, Their land is full of silver and gold, uh, there is no end to their treasures. Uh, It's pride that leads people to worship things they have made as the people were doing back then. Verse 8. The land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. And it's pride that leads people to trust in their own righteousness and to think, hey, I don't need forgiveness. Remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who stands proudly at the temple saying this God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And do you remember Jesus' chilling words of condemnation to the Pharisees in Matthew 23? He says this For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. At the end of the day, it's pride that leads people to live as they please and to refuse to accept that they are sinners who need to be forgiven. And yet, wonderfully, pride is defeated and eternity changed with the uttering of those humble words, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if we are followers of Jesus, this highlights how important it is that we keep walking humbly before God. Uh, Humility is one of the key marks of God's true people. Uh, Look at 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 6. It says this, All of you, uh, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You see, uh, when we pull up the weeds in our lives, how often do we find pride clinging to the roots? Uh, How do we react when somebody else is praised or when we are criticized? Uh, How often do we blow our own trumpet? Uh, What do we post on Facebook, and why? Are we quick to see the faults of others, but slow to see our own faults? Uh, It's possible to even be active in Christian ministry, but at the end of the day, for it to be driven by pride. But what does humility practically look like? I think it looks like this. A humility before God... Accepts my ongoing need for his forgiveness. We continue to come back to him confessing our failings in prayer. A humility means I accept God's word and I order my life according to it. A humility means I depend on God in prayer and I cast my cares upon him, not thinking I can go it alone without need of him. Humility means that I look not just to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I seek to serve them. You see, the Christian life, of course, is not only begins with humbling ourselves, but continues with humbling ourselves. And I know in my own experience, and I'm sure you do, uh, humility does not come naturally. When we view our life through that lens, uh, we realize, I desperately need this gift of humility. And so it is, we need to pray to God for his Holy Spirit to humble our hearts. Uh, We need to repent of pride, and we need to root it out and pursue humility. And when we see the true value of humility, it changes the way that we view what happens in our life. Because then we can even view failures as helpful if indeed they humble us. So, if we are God's people, uh, seeing how much God hates pride should make us declare war on pride in our own lives. Let us indeed ask God to search our hearts and by the power of his Spirit to declare war on pride. So, uh, to humble ourselves before Christ now, uh, that is the heart of true wisdom, and it transforms that future final day from a personal experience of terror to an experience of wonder. For then we will at last behold Christ in all his majesty, and in all his splendor, and all his power. Uh, He is the one referred to in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, as the beautiful branch. Look at verse 2. But in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And when we get to chapter 11 of Isaiah, we're going to see that the branch is there identified as the Messiah himself. And therefore, instead of being a source of terror... The Lord will be to his people an object of wonder and beauty and glory. Instead of fleeing from him, his people will be marveling at him. And they themselves will be a holy people. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4 of Isaiah. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And as verse 4 says, they will be washed clean and cleansed by the Lord from all their sins. And their destiny is to live in the glorious city, enjoying the Lord's presence and the Lord's protection. That is the significance of the imagery in verses 5 to 6 of the cloud and the fire. It's alluding back to how God protected his people during their wilderness wanderings in Exodus. Uh, the difference now is that their wanderings have ceased. They have reached their journey's end. They now have permanent residence in the new Zion. They're enjoying God's presence and his protection over the city forever. And this is their final destiny. It's a picture which is picked up and developed in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapters 21-22. And as God's people... Uh, This heavenly city is our true home. Uh, This is what we should long for. It's where our hearts should be. You see, we are like pilgrims. We're walking through this world, and that is journey's end. And as we continue on the path of life, this vision of the heavenly city should give us perspective and joy amidst the struggles of the pilgrimage now. As Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 20, Rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We're in the last days now. And these last days will not go on forever. One day, these last days will pass into the last day. And until then, let's do what Isaiah 2, verse 5 says. Uh, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us live in the light of what is revealed about the future. And let us align our lives with it now so that we can live as people who are ready for that day and can have the joy of knowing we're ready for that day in our hearts now. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Uh, You have revealed to us the future. You've given us a road map to understand history and where it's heading, uh, that ultimate climactic day when the Lord Jesus returns uh, in all his glory, his majesty, and his power. We pray, therefore, that we will live as people of light now, uh, living in the light of what you revealed about that. May it shape our priorities. Uh, May it humble us before you. Uh, May it call us to continue to call out for the work of your spirit and your word in our lives. And may we have that true peace in our hearts, knowing that even in failure, uh, you can use that for good to humble us and to do that wonderful work in our hearts. So please we pray, help us to live as people of vision and never to lose sight of what you reveal to us for our benefit and our eternal glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is.